Hey, folks, we have taped the last three episodes in a row of this podcast on video. That unedited visual experience is available only to Philosophy versus Improv supporters via patreon.com slash philosophy improv. This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer, a philosophy assessor who today is assessing the field of improvisation. And I am Bill Arnett, an improv inspector, and I will be called to a home of philosophy in which to perform my uh, inspection. Hello, I'm Nick Riggle, associate professor of philosophy at the University of San Diego. I work in mostly aesthetics, but aesthetics is very interdisciplinary, so I write in philosophy of language, value theory, moral psychology, all kinds of things, social philosophy more late, more recently. And I have a new book out called This Beauty, A Philosophy of Being Alive. It's actually not this beauty. It's this, this beauty. Yes. It's, the, it's, it's indexical. It's, it's, you could yes. say it wrong if you're in the wrong circumstance. Especially if it's ugly. <laughs> Beautiful in its ugliness. Rather than having you immediately give the thesis of your book, I was watching a video about your last book on awesomeness and was struck by how your definition of awesomeness as creating a social space for improvisation Mm -hmm. rather lines up with the bent of this podcast that identifies some sort of important existential connection with going off script in some sense. Yeah, exactly. The book even draws on the rule of saying yes and later in the book. So drawing that analogy explicitly with improv. um, In that book, I argue that being awesome is being good at creating these social openings. So a social opening is an opportunity to step out of your everyday norms, habits, and roles and express your individuality, something that normally doesn't get expressed when you're just enacting a social role or carrying out your sort of everyday habits and routines. And so when someone's good at creating this opening, they're basically good at sort of inviting you into this space where you can kind of improvise, but in a way that engages your particular sense of humor, uh, your particular aesthetic sensibility, uh, your sense of taste in clothes and food and decor and all these things that make you sort of wonderfully you and allows you to connect with that other person as another individual rather than as like the barista or the colleague or whatever other role, you know, you, you tend to be enacting in your daily life. Yeah, I got to do a, a lot of, not a lot, but a fair amount of corporate training in the improv sphere. And it's still popular, I guess. It was quite popular 10, 15 years ago. And 99 times out of 100, it's just like, oh, y'all don't speak up. You don't speak your mind. You know, you don't feel comfortable speaking your mind. Now, is it their fault they don't feel comfortable? Is it corporate culture? Is it human culture? You know, what's going on? But it all boils down to people not wanting to be themselves. And they are honest with people on their level of the business structure. And they will, you know, be very, oh, man, that meeting was terrible. Our meeting was great or so and so. But then the second they have to talk to someone above or below their level, well, now suddenly all the social constraints come in. Uh, That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think it's the difficulty in creating social openings with someone above or below you in the hierarchy and then feeling comfortable or not taking up a social opening. So even if you were like one of these people who like, okay, I'm going to try to be awesome. Even in this difficult work setting, you might have trouble getting the take up that you need to sure. create awesomeness, which is that like that bond between. 
So it sounds like this is restricted to stranger interactions, that if I have established with my friend Bill here that we're going to be goofy, we're going to open up stuff, then in fact, I'm treating him as my jester, as my humor machine. He's my humor barista. And I say, dance for me, puppet. Then I'm not actually creating an opening there. Or am I? <laughs> Are you really doing that, Mark? Is that, is that the nature of our relationship this whole time? I got conflicting information there. On the one hand, it sounded like you were buds. On the other hand, it sounded like you were the puppet master. In the book, I make the point that the value, I think, comes out in these sort of everyday interactions with people that might be strangers. But the value can be there with friends. It's actually, I think, typically there with friends. Friendships are often commitments to being awesome with one another. All right. All right. So the fact that Bill treats me as his personal philosophy vending machine saying, what do the ancients say about this? Ka-ching, <laughs> give me that wisdom. I should just take that as an opening that I can be more creative than the, the Snickers vending machine, always giving you a Snickers. Sometimes you get a chunky. <laughs> I, no one has eaten a chunky, I don't think, in 25 years. Let me just say that. Right? Yeah, that might be like a Chicago thing or something. I don't even know what that is. I, I think they got stuck in the vending machines. Their chunky nature made, made it. Oh. It's kind of a square chocolate that's, with that's, nuts and raisins. <laughs> something pretty vile, actually. That does I, not sound nice to me. Yeah. <laughs> in the 70s. It was all the thing in the 70s. Interesting. That's yeah. our way of bringing in the young audiences is to make <laughs> references like that continually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we have enough information on the table? Even though we haven't given the thesis of this book, the current book yet, though, to start some sort of improvisatory scene to give us an opening to be awesome or to fail miserably. Usually, you know, Mark and I have a lesson we bring for each other and whatnot. Sometimes that lesson is brought in very mysteriously and subtly. And then at the end, it is discussed. And other times that lesson is just kind of thrown on the table and kicked around pretty directly. The improv lesson I have for today, Mark, I think we should just throw it out there. Okay. That's okay. I'm pulling the lever. Give me that lesson. <laughs> yeah, there goods. we go. You deposited your 50 cents and now you will be dispensed the improv wisdom. Well, it's this idea that in life, when we think about other people, like if I were to ask you, hey, describe someone at the office, describe this person you work with. Humanity has a little code that we always use when describing somebody. We always first, and I've done some non-scientific tests, anecdotal tests. <laughs> We describe how we know that person. Oh, there's this guy at the office. Oh, my mother-in-law. Oh, my wife's friend. You know, we say that thing first so that the other person understands because they have a boss and I understand the social rules associated with that role. Ah, yes. Mother's-in-law. I understand how that, even if I don't have one, I understand how that is. And then the other thing we do is we describe their behavior and their behavior is always something Simple and short. It's never criminal, but it, it is a serial behavior. My mother-in-law, she just talks so much. You know, there's this guy at the office. He just thinks he's my buddy all the time. And just he goes around the office thinking they're everybody's buddy. And I swear, this is, again, anecdotally, I have done this experiment with improv students not knowing how they're answering. And it's nine times out of ten, here's the social function of this person, how they fit into my life and how they might fit into your life so you understand it, and then this is the behavior that they, they embody. So I thought it'd be fun, Nick, if you're up to it, for you to embody the behavior of your philosophy, of your latest book. Now, if you want, oh you, can, my God. you can turn it up to 11 if you want to be kind of like fun and goofy and gross with it. I mean, that, that, I'm totally acceptable. I don't know how precious you are with things. Some people are, and that's, that could be a behavior, incredibly precious 
with everything. I am potty training a toddler <laughs> right now, so my humor is uh, knee-jerk scatological. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or when it's not like I found myself laughing my ass off at a very childish joke, which I can tell you in two seconds. Um, <laughs> why are why are chickens funny? Why are chickens funny? Because I appreciate that. <laughs> For everyone listening, Mark and I are visibly groaning. Yes. <laughs> but see, to me, that's just the best. I get you. And we're both parents as well. Been there, done that. <laughs> I'm down. So I wanna, I'm going to embody the new book. Um, it's, yeah, it's yeah. not even just reducing the new book to a slogan, which the society yeah. expects you, but reducing it to uh, a set of behaviors. I don't know if that's worse or better than a slogan, but <laughs> we're going to, this is what we're doing here. This is fun. We're experimenting. And again, like I said, if you want to turn it up to 11 and be over the top, that's totally fine as well. Or to one, to down to one. And we I have, have to no, I have no idea what's going to happen. I've never, I literally never done improv before. So let's see what improv Nick is all about. I have no idea. I'm sure it's just like skating. I'm sure it's exactly well, skating like Skating has an improvisational. Yeah. What I usually say in these situations, Mark. Uh, we're already improvising. You've said some things with your mouth <laughs> that you didn't write beforehand. True. We didn't plan. We didn't plan it. It's literally that. That is most simple, basic sense. We're just going to pretend to be other people. Not improvisers, but people. That's a subtle distinction we can talk about one of these days. I'll get it started very directly and simply with a very silver platter kind of scene top, if that's cool. Is that all right, Mark? Go ahead. All right. I just talked to uh, Lisa about the car wash this weekend. And, um, you know, they just want to make sure that the kids, you know, wear appropriate bathing suits for the car wash, you know. So if we just want to maybe bring some extra towels or some extra T-shirts or things in case any of the kids. I mean, they're seniors, you know, and they're, they might get a little crazy. I mean, I know that Doris, is that a, a name that people actually yeah, have Doris. these days? Yeah, she pretty much wears something inappropriate in Every all circumstances. Day. So. Yeah. You know, this is going to be a little hard to police. Do you really feel like you want to get policing uh, women's bodies? That seems a little. It's touchy. It's and and I, I don't want to. I don't want to do too much. But look, we signed up to chaperone this thing, and the last thing I want is a a line of cars. You know, well, I do want a line of cars. I want the kids to raise money. <laughs> I want that. I want that. I to mean, happen. it is the dead of winter. I mean, how 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 scantily clad can they be? Doris, she'll <laughs> she'll figure it out. I don't know. Once that warm. Soapy water gets going, you know, um, let's not put it past I, I I feel like even in describing this, maybe your involvement in this is a little problematic talking about high school girls in warm, soapy water. Why is this even the choice of fundraiser again at this time of year, as, as Nick pointed out? Frozen soap is pretty cool. I mean, if you put it on the top of a truck and it freezes, it looks pretty beautiful. I mean, it's kind of a nice look. It doesn't matter if you're wearing a bathing suit when you put it on. Looks nice either way. Well, they need to clean the car. I mean, we can't just leave soap lying around. We have to oh, you know, oh. clean. We're cleaning the car. We're cleaning the cars. I'm just thinking about the aesthetics. It look nice. I mean, I understand the road salt is worse yeah. this time of year. And so during the summer every or spring, you know, as the graduation fundraiser kind of things are approaching, there'd be a lot of competition. But now people don't even think about washing their cars. If they see some sort of uh, angelic looking uh, soap creation, and or scantily clad people of some sort. I, maybe maybe it's just a, a question of don't necessarily pressure the girls to wear something in particular, but everybody wear something really inappropriate for the weather. And then it would sort of uh, just but average honestly, out. like why take the soap off if it looks if it looks nice when it's on? 
Well, that, that's how mm. you wash a car. Look, we've got one of the. I mean, uh, does that really have to be the goal? I mean, the car is supposed to look nice at the end. I mean, if it looks nice with soap on, why take it off? I mean, it clean or not? I mean, the soap's on. It's kind of clean. I guess that's the option of the of the driver. Personally, because we could also we could also paint like cool designs in the dirt. You know, if there's like a a nice car with some nice mud splashes on the side, and we just want to kind of you know make a nice design in the mud. You know, that people draw write silly messages on the back. I mean, let's take that to the next level and make it like especially beautiful. First of all, let me say we've reserved a pull through bay at one of these auto shops, so t- mm. temperature should be taken care of. Secondly. This is a, we've advertised it as a car wash. And while I appreciate all these artistic things, it's more about what But when you wash a car, you make it beautiful and you can make it beautiful. You know, maybe it's kind of washing, you know, wash away the dirt into the beauty. Is there some way that we can moralize this? So it's not just a, a physically washing, but we make them feel like spiritually they're cleaner after this. Yeah. Process. I mean, if you do something beautiful on the car and you take, pull them out of the car, ask them, you know, invite them to look at what they've done and they might be mad that the car's not clean, but I mean, how can you really be mad in the face of beauty? I, we'll find out. I, I'm going to guess there's actually quite a, quite a bit. Look, yo, I think throughput should be the name of the game here. If we're trying to raise money, you know, uh, these kids, oh, there's money involved. Huh. Yeah. This is a fundraiser. It's a fundraiser. Huh. Really? Can we think of funds in terms of aesthetic value instead of monetary value? We can think of it in addition to monetary value. How about that? Uh, okay. I'm a little skeptical, but money has to be involved in some way, but can it just be a byproduct? Right? If it's the goal, then you feel the whole thing feels kind of gross. But if it's something that just comes out of it when you're doing what you really love. Yeah. Spontaneous donation in response to beauty. I like that. This is another argument for, you know, leaving the soap on the on the roof and drawing designs. <laughs> did, you, did you guys do fundraisers in high school or like Boy Scouts or, you know, Girl Scouts uh, or any anything with fundraisers? I dropped out of high school, so. I didn't really know about money in high school. I just had, I just asked for what I wanted and I got it. Nice. Look, the idea is we provide a service and it's a nominal service that is essentially we charge m- more than this service is worth. For in order to raise money, but everyone understands, okay? And all the kids are going to, you know, like the seniors are going to be washing the cars. Parents are going to be driving through, okay? That's why I said, let's keep dress code, you know, enforced because parents are going to be driving through and it's, it's all a big fun thing. And they probably won't even do a very good job cleaning the cars, but that's okay. It's just this. But isn't this the kind of, you know, wall art of car washing? Like where's the avant-garde car washing? I mean, why does it always just have to be the same thing? You pay the money, you clean the car. Oh, the car has no dirt on it. Nice job. Very creative. You know, if we did something a little more thoughtful, avant-garde, you know, maybe we'll make even more money because it'll catch on. Hey, they don't necessarily wash your car, but look at this dirt splat pattern that they left on consciously. Yeah, the complete absence of dirt is just featureless. I mean, I, I guess it does allow like, the, do you the, even the drive essence of the car, car to shine yeah. through. It allows the essence of the car to shine through. Thank you, Mark. You may not have intended to say that, but you did, and I heard it. Okay. The essence of an undriven car. I mean, a car that's driven has art on it. Okay, this is mm. Sunday. Mm. All right, this is in four days. All right? And what I'm most concerned about is, do we, between us, do we have some extra sweatshirts and big towels that we can bring? 
All right, just to make sure things go smoothly. Why don't I head the avant-garde division and you guys or whoever wants to can do the, you know, pedestrian mundane stuff. I'm okay with that. Let's see who makes more beauty Uh, and maybe more money. Ultimately, it's the the consumer choice will determine the the value of the the product. Hey, not to get all capitalistic, but sure, that's fine. And I'll tell you right now, Nick, you will win the beauty contest, okay? And my, and my lane will win the fundraising contest. Do you mind if I sell my book too during this? I, I do a lot. Oh, I mean, man. <laughs> are you kidding? Well, I mean, if we make beautiful designs on their cars, I could say, hey, I wrote a book about beauty. Why not? Why not have a little stand at the end? Can we use the proceeds of the book for the two? No, no, funds? I, need, I need those for my children. <laughs> That's the whole point of the fundraiser. You see, uh, you uh, see how you're you're robbing Peter to pay Paul here. You see how it's like we already have the mechanism set up to raise money, and then you putting on an off ramp and then insisting, well, as cool as this is, we still need to raise money. That was then coming from again. My concern is that this thing goes smoothly. That's all I care. What's about. better though, a beautiful car without a book in it, or a beautiful car with a book in it? What's better? Depends on the book. I can find some. Well, I mean, we can get the we get some pretty nasty books to put in there. I don't know if the Pol Pot biography. You know, I mean, we can <laughs> we can make that happen. I, you keep trying to get rid of that case of Pol Pot biographies that you have under your bed, and I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear any more about your damn Pol Pot biographies. Stop bringing that in every time we have a conversation. It was a, it was a pretty weird phase, Bill. You have to admit. I thought the public was ready to learn. And Learn what, though? How not to behave. The introduction was outstanding. Let me just say that. The first two-paragraph introduction was pretty good. Yeah, we'll stop right there. We'll stop right there. <laughs> right. Stop, stop, we stop. got to Pol Pot. That's yeah, yeah. What would the lessons of the Pol Pot biography be? Like, don't be bad. <laughs> pretty I mean, it seems like it actually might be pretty yeah. interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I'm not... <laughs> Don't be Pol Pot. Here's how he became himself. I mean, if it's the Pol Pot manifesto, that seems like something that I would not be interested in. But the Pol Pot story, probably fascinating. Uh, Told from an outside perspective. Let me just be clear. I'm not sure if him telling his story, it's a bit like Donald Trump's autobiography. I'll tell you what that's about right now. I love myself. You don't need to read anymore. And yet using a ghostwriter means that indexical no longer applies. Does the ghostwriter love himself? Does he love Trump himself in Trump's stead because Trump is unable to love himself? Or does Trump love himself but is unable to express how much he loves himself? And so the ghostwriter is taking the role of Trump and uh, pretending. I think everyone loves Trump. They just don't know it yet. That's the sort of (laughs) internal ethos of the man himself. Is love to hate still love? (laughs) You know, it's having a use for. That's a good aesthetic question. (laughs) It seems like the no publicity is bad publicity. The whole thing that what the press learned from this whole experience. Why do we love bad movies? How did you feel about playing that scene, Nick? That was fun. It took me a second to figure out my approach, but. I feel like it was fun. Yeah, yeah. I loved that. It was great. Once you narrowed it in, it was great. Do you think it embodied some of the things in your in your book? Yeah, in a kind of caricature-y way. But Certainly. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because last episode, we talked about the meaning of life. And so this is continuing, is a variation off that question of given the realization that life is short, then does that logically entail that you should do any particular thing. Does it logically entail any particular attitude at all? We act like it does. 
We say you only live once as if that's supposed to mean something. But is that merely culturally relative or does that express something sort of fundamental about human nature and sort of realizing our own mortality, which is, you know, something at some point you figure out, you know, that should be a characterizing trait of adulthood. And that's supposed to then, according to at least conventional wisdom, lead to this uh, seize the day sort of mentality. But does that logic actually work? Yeah. In the new book, I talk about this. And one, one way to get at it is like, you only live once. People think that that means you should embrace life or be loving of life, spontaneous, adventurous, um, bold, or carpe diem, right? Seize the day, make your life extraordinary. And it's like, yeah, you only live once, but on the one hand, like you didn't choose to be alive. Like you didn't choose your life or your existence, right? You just sort of woke up one day and found out like, wait, like, what is all this? I didn't choose this. I'm just sort of in this body, on this weird planet, like in this galaxy. Why should I value this thing that I didn't choose? It's as if someone you know, hands you a beautiful Japanese knife and, and says, here's your knife. Now you have to become a Jacques Pepin level meat carving, vegetable chopping professional chef. Like, here's your knife back. I don't want to, I don't even want this. Like, so that's one way to get it. It's if you only live once, but you didn't choose this. So like, why have any sort of attitude towards it, especially when it's troubling and difficult and full of like, lots of suffering and pain, even for very privileged people. Another way to get at it, though, I think is by saying, would things change if you live twice? You know, if you just knew, like, you live, you have one life, and then it's not like heaven or something like that. You just, you're like, you live one life, you die, and you just have another one right after. You just, like, everyone knows that that's what's going to go on. You would still maybe feel like, oh, you only live twice. I can just sit on the couch all, all day in this life this, because this I'm going to live practice. again. Um. Yeah. You get to practice and you got your, your final exam. Yeah, right. Maybe. Yeah. Which probably means you actually should practice. You should do some of the same things. Yeah, exactly. It's like you don't think that, oh, now that I live twice, I can just do nothing in this life. Yeah. You know, the thought is it's not about the number of times you live. I mean, think about Nietzsche's eternal recurrence, right? That thought experiment was like you live an infinite number of times, right? It's not just twice. And he drew the same sort of thought, like, this should encourage you to embrace life, to find your quote unquote tremendous moment or to affirm your existence. My thought is, you know, if you, if you live twice, if you live an infinite number, it seems like it doesn't matter what the numbers are. It's something about being alive that merits its embrace. And it's like, what is that? I mean, if you're not aware of past lives, it may as well be once. Oh, yeah, you've been alive a billion, a billion to the billionth power times, but you are completely numb to it. Oh, well, I guess I may not have lived a billion. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's specifically think about the Groundhog Day case, mm -hmm. where the conceit of that film was that eventually, after spoiler alert, li after living <laughs> through, I bet people who have seen Groundhog Day, if they're interested in seeing Groundhog Day, but you could, you could pause and go do it's that. It's over if 15 like. years. Honestly, in the spirit of the movie, I've seen it probably 30 times. So, <laughs> yes. uh, and it's still. It's it's wonderful. So, of course, how many lives did he go through just being drunk the whole time, pursuing the, yeah. the, the sexually available partners, probably trying to screw everyone? I mean, I, you'd get into some serious experimentation. Animals, I mean, the trees, it just it, it, those were all deleted scenes when he was uh, on his uh, flora phase. But it comes down to let's try to get a perfect game. And that at least was the point. I wonder if that's where you would actually start or whether you would just try to do that once. And then you would kind of fall back to the, 
that wouldn't be the point, but it, it at least was presented as when you get the perfect game, well, then you get to get out of it. You've, you've fulfilled whatever the test that's going on. Like some estimates are that he was in that loop for 40,000, something like 40,000 years. <laughs> in the film, they make it super clear that one of the phases was pure hedonism, not just like sex, but also food and cigarettes and, you know, wearing cowboy suits around town and stuff like that. And then depression. He like kills himself multiple times, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. No, he kills himself every which way, including the dramatic scene of driving a truck off the cliff with the groundhog in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hoping it will free him. He wants to be free. Yeah. And what frees him is, you notice, of course, there's the love scene. Truly understanding love is kind of what magically frees him at the end. But he doesn't get there without the love of beauty. So that's an important aspect of the film. Notice that he becomes a expert pianist, right? That's one of the main things. He learns to recite poetry, French poetry. He masters multiple languages to be able to read literature in those languages. Among other things, he learns, I think, to dance and I think also to, uh, oh, to carve sculptures in ice. Yes. Um, he becomes basically an aesthetic hero. And it's through this kind of aesthetic education that he learns to genuinely love another person in their individual beauty and, and all that. And so I think that um, it's a very aesthetic film, if you pay attention to his sort of educational path out of the loop. Not to get more challenging or probing, but I think sometimes anytime aesthetics comes up or even these things that we mentioned that he, he chose to do, it can get a little elitist. Could he have chosen different things? You know, is the only path towards aesthetic understanding French poetry? You know? <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it is kind of annoying that the way he dresses at the end is kind of the same as the way he was dressing before. Like, surely you've learned to think, like, you were wearing cowboy suits downtown. Like, surely now you understand that, like, you could be dressing a lot better. You know, in terms of like wearing, you know, Bowie esque outfits excellent makeup and you know cool hair i think that's a great question let's stop to promote another podcast remember those high school years kids were mean math was hard and you didn't know how to navigate your weird emotions comedian and tv host spencer litzinger passed high school by the skin of her teeth learning disabilities family tragedies a stay in a mental hospital and attempted emancipation all made studying pretty difficult for her now she's filling in the gaps of her knowledge with the help of her boyfriend, Eli, a former ESL teacher. Every episode, Eli tests Spencer's knowledge on a given subject. Then Spencer gets 30 minutes to cram before a final exam that will determine whether she passes or fails that episode. And failure comes with silly consequences. Spencer Wants to Know is a podcast full of heart, comedy, and useful information. A triple threat. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or at thesonarnetwork.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. If you only live once, would you spend any time on your hair. Even yes, physical maintenance absolutely. has been a, a thing that I've, as a budding philosopher, I had contempt for gym class. I had contempt, you know, until mm. my metabolism changed as I got older and now I actually have to work out or I will become ever wider. I had utter contempt 
for physical activity. I was a creature, a purely spiritual, purely mental, intellectual creature. Uh, and there are lots of reasons for that. But one of them was arguably Aristotle's solution that the thing that we're meant to do is to think, is to reason. Maybe creating art is part of that. But at the very least, we're using those gifts unique to the human being, which seems like to rule out clearly as someone who put a lot of time into skating. You do not share this uh, prejudice. No, not at all. No. I mean, the view I develop and defend in the book is that the way that we can stay in touch with the value of being alive isn't by just caring for the body, preserving our lives in a sort of basic biological sense, but by tapping into the many ways in which life can seem valuable and aesthetic practices are a reliable way of, of doing that. So why should you care about this life that you didn't choose? Well, look how beautiful the Pacific Ocean is or watch this film, you know, watch Groundhog Day and tell me that like things aren't just kind of all right. You know, like the great film, it's hilarious. It's wonderfully acted. It's beautifully, I just beautifully cut, beautifully sort of put together. Um, it's like this perfect little film, you know, and we can refer, you know, in an anti-elitist way to films like that or to rock bands or to a fashion. You know, I totally think that loving your sort of embodied appearance in a certain social sense is a way of tapping into the value of, of being alive. Are there any, again, not to be, uh, and I'm not even sure if this is devil's advocate here, but are there certain parts of our humanity that are unsavory yet still human if that makes sense and how do we decide which of those to run from and which of those to embrace and which of those to just tolerate in the philosophical mode i would just ask you a little bit about what do you mean by unsavory you know when i hear that i, I get on almost slightly moralistic kind of idea totally, totally so i'm totally. not sure if i would buy the premise you know that's i guess that's my alcoholism I'm not aware of a culture that isn't touched by addiction. And it's like, well, it's human. We all, I mean, <laughs> there's that Gary's a drunk. That's just who he is. Mm. And it is a human thing. Or is it like, no, 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 this is, we, if we're going to better ourselves, you know. I thought about if you're trying to argue with somebody out of suicide or something, you know, somebody who like, proved to me that there's meaning to life, proved to me that I should bother to go on doing things. And because of the is odd distinction, you can't just point to something and say life is short. That's not enough. You have to point to some desires that they have, but then if they're really depressed, they don't have those desires right now. <laughs> so there's a fact. Well, later, if you get past this point, you will find, you know, if, if you try things, you will find them meaningful. You will want to do them. So you're getting at teleology, which is a word I, I always like, comes from Aristotle, that there is some innate directedness within human nature. But what you're pointing out is that's a a moralistic concept, right? If you're really being scientific about it and you just look, what do human beings tend to do? Well, they do tend to try to grow up to be big and strong. That's very much in line with Aristotle's idea of the telos. You know, we are specifically through our speech and our mentality. Um, it seems like maybe thinking and philosophizing the kind of stuff that Aristotle wants us to do is part of our nature, but there are plenty of other stuff. And so you got a guy like St. Augustine coming along and saying, no, actually, we're by nature sinful. <laughs> the default, we need to be saved by some external laws or something. 
that if we just look at what your actual desires are now or your desires will be over the long term, it's actually going to be mostly pretty venal. Like yeah. Pol Pot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, power, maybe. Yeah. So Nietzsche sort of tries to split the difference that, yes, the basic thing on human nature is a will to power, but that's actually pretty good. You know, that, that <laughs> there's at least a way of dealing with ourselves and sublimating such that we can be such rambunctious creatures, but yet get something meaningful and beautiful out of it. Yeah, I think that a lot of beauty is created in trying circumstances out of suffering, out of pain, a lot of ugliness too. But I don't really have, you know, a kind of teleological picture. Quite the opposite, really. I mean, I'm really at pains to develop a way of thinking about the value of being alive given this existential circumstance that we're in that's not religiously described at all or teleologically described at all. It's just, you know, you find yourself alive in in this sort of mysterious circumstance or set of circumstances. How do you deal with that when part of those circumstances definitely include these darker tendencies, social tendencies, just pure natural things like disasters and cancer and, and, you know, all kinds of like dark aspects of human life. And the thought is, by the end of the book, I develop a kind of social theory of aesthetic value. And the thought is, basically, we've created this practice of valuing things in a certain way that depends on certain capacities that we have. Thankfully, I guess, in some sense of thankful, but we just have them, um, something we can draw mm-hmm. on, a resource we can draw on. And in this practice, we imitate, share, and self-express in such a way that we distribute and create these goods that just happen to, not all of them, but you know, at, at its core, these goods happen to be such that when you engage with them, you find that this big question is silenced or somehow indirectly answered or somehow just you're like, being alive is, is wonderful. <laughs> this is kind of the upshot of it is this thought that like, I can be alive in this way. That's fine. Mm-hmm. despite all these other things and there's no you know there's no god there's no reference to teleology or to theology it's a kind of existentialist aesthetic and social mm-hmm. communal picture would you say in general people need to be able to find appreciation in whatever that they're doing in their life or that they have in their life an appreciation that is independent of other outside social constructs or spiritual constructs is just like whatever that may be. And hopefully their appreciation does not involve cruelty. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to say that if you have a crappy life, you should try to appreciate it. So it's not this like toxic positivity kind of thing where it's like, just accept your shitty circumstances and enjoy your life. Quite the opposite. I think, you know, one of the ways out is to sort of tap into practices that help you improve your life, not just to accept it, but to make it better, more acceptable. So that might be like inventing jazz with your friends or a new clothing style or breakdancing or graffiti. Or There's a lot of things that have come out of oppression, pain, suffering, where essentially people engage in this aesthetic mode of valuing, this sort of communal aesthetic mode of valuing, and offer up to the world something totally new that changes lives both for the creators and for the appreciators. Like improv? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I will say that, Lord knows, my artistic projects have not been, and I probably shouldn't compare them to 
Groundhog's Day or Bill Murray or <laughs> the fine actors, writers, producers involved in those projects. But the best creative output in my life have been when everyone involved in the project once is happy to be involved in the project. And all they care about is the, and there's no expectation of reward or no expectation of recognition. And we just want this project to succeed for the sake of the project. So you're not doing it for money, huh? I guess well, <laughs> I was right about the car wash after all. <laughs> well, that's different. And I, I mean, I'm not going to turn <laughs> down money, uh, you know, but yes, anything what you're saying here, they don't happen often. But when you do find yourselves in those situations, well, like you said, you're with your friends, you hang out with your friends, you're doing whatever, you're playing video games, you know, whatever it is, you are able to hopefully enjoy those moments truly as yourself without thinking about, does everyone like me? Is this going well? And there are certainly right. people who may have some mental or social things they need to work on that prevent them from honestly doing that. But as an amen, I would say not only are those projects fun, they actually have the most output and the best things end up being created in those moments as well, semi-paradoxically. Amen, as it were, in a non-religious sense. <laughs> Affirming the beauty. Of I was trying said. to pivot towards another scene, Mark. Is that okay? <laughs> yes. We're in sync. Okay. Nick, would you be able to play in this one, play the behavior of the counterpoint? Which one's that? Or a counterpoint. Uh, a, to a, your, a counterpoint your, to your book or philosophy. A bad example. One of the ways of going wrong, at least. The knee-jerk response might be, and you know, I work with a lot of students and I may ask them to do certain things like this. My worry would be you're just a contrarian with no actual center of yourself. And that might come up a little bit. But I've already got that covered. You don't have to do that. <laughs> Mark does a perfectly fine job. Uh. <laughs> the foil in my book is the person I call the preservationist. And they just care okay. All right. about... Okay, well, hold on, slow down. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. You, you Show, get... don't tell. Show, don't tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get to be the preservationist. How about that? I see. Got it. Oh, and maybe you can even make them like silver-tongued. You know what I'm saying? Like... They don't think they're a bad Does the preservationists think they're a bad person? Do they think no. they're doing anything wrong? No. Is Pol Pot haunted by dreams at night about all the horrible things he's done? I hope so. He sleeps great. He slept like a baby, I bet. <laughs> well, you would know with all these. <laughs> My biographies. Yeah. Biographies. Bill, can I start the scene? I would love I for you to start. Idea. Yes. I have an idea that, that will actually put you, Bill, at the center. And I'm sorry to come to you at this point. It's, and this also shows that I read the first section of Nick's book. Bill, it's me, your imaginary friend, Van, from childhood. I'm sorry, Nick, to pull this on you, but it's, <laughs> I'm Bill's imaginary friend now. And I just, I know we haven't talked in a while, and I'm sorry to visit you here. You're back. With your friend, when you have a friend over here, usually I'm not publicly visible to more than one person, but I, I have some prior history with him. So I, I wanted to uh, just really complain about you created me as an imaginary being. And I feel like I'm pretty drab and I'm wondering why you made those choices. You're back. It's well, yeah. A, Nick, can you see him? Is this, I see a kind of outline. I don't see the full image. I've never really seen a ghost before. I'm, I'm a little surprised about the outline itself. I mean, despite not really, I'm not, a, I'm not a, the remains of a dead person. I, okay. I'm a, a, a Bill, could you describe him to me? Yeah. Yeah. Cause this is, this is a, what, what really give me some meat is a, uh, Bill, mm. you are you are the creative force who created me, and well, I, you know it's. Man, I, I was five. <laughs> I, I was a kid. You know, I I don't. You just kind of a a cool older brother with a ironic T shirt, but a five year old's sense of a cool older brother with an ironic T shirt. You know, and you wear those checkerboard Vans, and that's 
That's how I saw. Yeah. That's yeah. I just that I must have seen those as a kid and thought they were cool. I don't know what to tell you. I don't. He's not a van. No, not like a, a vehicle. Oh. How was this? How is this happening? I thought you're an imaginary friend. Well, yeah, and uh, you know I'm your creation, and I come forth when uh, I'm needed in your life, and so evidently. But you know, I feel that's kind of selfish of you that I've only come forth when I'm needed, and. You haven't really needed me so much. And I just feel like you needed some feedback. Maybe that's that's the need that I'm addressing. You didn't even know you had the need. I need an overhaul. Like I'm still in the five-year-old, the, the thing you created when you were five. And, and that's uh, it's wearing Van, thin. So, sorry to interrupt, Van, but I, I'm having trouble with this outline. Can you just like put some mud on your face? Please? Oh, yeah. I, All right. I would love to see if the, that might help me see more. Okay, I'm going to use this house plant. Is that all right? This is a nice fern here. Do you need some of this beer? I can put it in the. Yeah, let's let's uh, put the okay. beer in the, and then uh, I'm gonna just cake it. This is yeah, my house. This go. is my oh, house. Oh wait, sorry to waste your beer, but now I'm sort of blackface. I thought this which was is just not found cool. this in the back of your fridge. I didn't think you. I, I just look. I'm 37, all right, I, and I don't need my parents anymore. I don't. There's a lot of things I don't need anymore. I see. By the way, what he means by the cool older brother, the the mud is really helping. I don't know if it's the beer or the dirt, but I mean, the beer is cool. That's definitely cool. I see the cool older brother outline a little more. Yeah. 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 Just a cool older brother, you know, and I didn't have an older brother and I think I just needed someone to reassure me that I was to play with and to be like, you're allowed to be you. And I was five, (laughs) you know, and, and that kind of went away by the time I was eight or 10. And I got to point out that the Intellivision t-shirt like that has aged well because like uh, that was ironic at the time because you, I know you were an Atari guy and the television was like not cool but now like that would be that would be actually be worth something if I if I was physical if you were real yeah well the television was yeah. expensive it was expensive and they had that Intellivoice which that was really expensive I just you said you, you know have- Van sorry to interrupt mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but if you if you clean the mud off your face I'm sure you'll have a nice shiny face now because it's exfoliating. Beer so, and indoor plant miracle grow are excellent for shiny skin. He's an imaginary friend, Nick. He doesn't need to exfoliate. I can just imagine him. All right. What's my new, uh, my new uh, mud-free complexion? How, how does this strike you? That's nice. I think, you know, how do you feel? I feel more substantial. I feel like having yeah. gone through the mud and the beer phase, it gets you a little more mature, a little more uh, filled out. It's nice, you know, to care for your body, even if it's imaginary. Um, sure. Can we help you again? Is, do you need to find some, so, I, so you can I move on? I was just on? hoping you would, you would, oh, move on. I mean, this is it. I'm back. You need something to uh, keep you aesthetically challenged. I mean, clearly you failed with your own outfits and uh, facial grooming and things like that. So... I think maybe having an externalized thing, you know, kind of like a doll that you could, with your imagination, you could dress up. Maybe that'll help reflect back on yourself. I don't care about clothes. I work in a warehouse, so I don't need to wear nice clothes. So I I don't. Nick, your friend here is dressed very well. I mean, why are you guys even friends? I mean, you have such different fashion senses. Is that important? I mean, are we coming to the crux of it that you're, uh, <laughs> you're you've just sort of gone with the flow and like, oh, let's go hang out at my house, and you and you don't even know why you're inter- engaged in a social interaction. 
I'm shocked that your imagination is so critical of our friendship. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I'm just, quest- I'm just asking questions. I'm not critical. I just wonder what the transaction is that, you know, Nick, why, why do you find Bill to be uh, worth hanging out with? What, what do you like about Bill? I, well, he's funny. He doesn't care about clothes, but he still looks nice. Thank you. And he has pretty good beer in the back of his fridge that I apparently don't mind wasting. I mean, he's funny. Like, look at my big toes. Look what he did with those. Like, that's pretty, that's pretty good. But I wish that that was throughout that you'd sort of applied yourself in that way. The big toe creative spark was amplified. Just popping out of the top of those checkered vans. It's very cool. Why does your decision about what creativity and self-expression is, why should I buy that? Why can't I just be me and slovenly don't work out? My diet is kind of gross, but I'm happy. Why, why is that a problem? I do think you're asking this to yourself via van, but... Uh huh. Uh-huh. I, I could try to, as a friend, just say, you know, caring for your body a little more could help you. I'm not saying that you have to be like, you know, some superhero figure, but the loving preservation of this physical body, I mean, it's kind of all you have, right? Like, you just have this body. And if you let it go to waste, I mean, that, that's it. Like, if you only live once, I mean, you might as well. Okay. Then I only live once. Be healthy and take baths and rub beer mud on your face. Like Van, are you hearing this? Are you hearing this from a, from an actual person and not just a creation of your subconscious? Why is a short, happy life wrong? Not wrong. Just, I mean, what is what is happy if your body is beautiful and shiny and relaxed and stress free and yoga fied and you could at least throw on some athleisure. So, huh? Some what? What? Ath- athleisure. Athleisure. Yeah, it's big. Big where I'm it's like from. Like really nice sweatpants. Yeah, where it's like, are you shopping or running a marathon? I don't know. I just could do both. I buy what's cheap at Target. You can get cheap athleisure. You can do that. Is athleisure a brand or just a style? Just a style. It's a spirit. Yeah, I mean, if people can see your your nipples, like, that's good. I yeah. don't want people seeing my... Okay, Van, honestly, this is... um. Thank you. Is that something that Van said when you were little? No. You know what Van said when I was little? You're great. You're fun. Well, I want to play whatever you want to play. That's awesome. You're a great kid. This is so nice. I'm glad I'm glad I'm your friend. That's when you had a simpler psychology and now clearly you have some problems with yourself and I'm glad that you have what appears to be a very good friend to help you work things out and uh if you do continue to abuse your body um I might take over and uh just just a, an option to throw out a warning, let's say, because uh, your big toe might become the most prominent thing that people mm. know about you if you're if you're not careful here. I don't need people to know about me. I think that's the difference. I, I'm not courting popularity. I think that's fine. You could still, you know, rock athleisure in your spare time by yourself. Yeah, we'll stop right there. Very fun. The warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> So do we not like athleisure, Nick? The preservationist in my book is someone who thinks that life is worth living solely in virtue of like caring for the body. Okay. Life itself is worth just holding on to. And so they care about like being healthy and like caring for your skin and making sure that your metabolism is good and exercising. And, you know, maybe they're not like the fittest people in the world. It's just, they just think that preserving your physical life. Sure. 
is enough to, to merit the valuing of life. Gotcha. So it's not simply, man, I got to not drink caffeine at night because then I can't sleep. That would be maybe part of it, right? Okay. Like these kind of minute concerns about nutrition and okay. yeah, yeah. Um, getting, getting enough sleep. And the idea is that, you know, there's this thought from Bernard Williams, who's an influential British philosopher, who thought that eternal life, if you live, you know, if you, if you had an infinite life, you never died, you're immortal. It would be boring. It wouldn't be worth living because you would ultimately do all of the things that typically make life worth living. You would cure cancer. You would paint all the beautiful paintings. You would, you would sort of run out of things to do. The preservationist responds to that by saying, no, not really, because if there's anything to do to just sort of maintain life, uh, light socialization, good sleep, you know, nice long bath, maybe a, maybe a sauna now and then, clipping your fingernails and things that just kind of like keep your body in good stead for, for just for, for the sake of that just for that for that itself yeah like that would be you know the preservation it's sort of thinks that way life can be meaningful enough even under those conditions it, it is appropriate for us who are stricken with mortality to rationalize it by picturing as tolkien did you know that the elves live forever but then the the man was given the gift of death the death is a is a good thing. It's a gift from the gods. And that's great for us to have that attitude and say the grass is greener right here than that situation that we couldn't possibly be in. If put on the spot and given the opportunity to get in that other yard, to become an elf, to live forever, I think I'd rather deal with the problems of boredom or whatever when the time <laughs> comes. Yeah, I haven't investigated that option yet by living it. And I think that you know, throughout this thing, we're finding that the problem of life can only be solved by actually experiencing it, by living it, by trying different things. It is not something that you could sort of, you know, look at a, a teleology, look at something. Here's what you're supposed to be doing. Here's what other people like to do. You know, all that stuff plays into it. But, you know, it's a matter of like, to me, the you only live once, the preservationist attitude and the seize the day, get out. Like those are both sort of equally rational. So, well, just try them out. I mean, unfortunately, you can't fully live your life according to one thing and then have your second life to fully live it according to the other. But you could still, at different yeah. times of your life, you know, we know the difference between when we were young and out partying, maybe, and now being older and more sedate. Those are at least two points of data. One of the things that Williams maybe overlooks or, or doesn't take seriously enough is sort of captured by this by the preservationist, but can be generalized more, which is that, you know, I, he kind of seems to think of everything that you would do in a mortal life as in a kind of teleological way. Like there's a goal, you you meet the goal, and then you move on to another thing where there's a goal and you meet the goal and then you move on to another thing. And But a lot of our aesthetic activities are atelic or have their meaning in and of themselves. It's not about necessarily finishing the project so much as being engaged in doing the thing. I think improv is kind of like that, where it just ends at some point. And it's like, the good was in the doing of the thing. And it's gone. Yeah, and it's over. That's it. It's not like you're sort of like, let's preserve this for all time because we met this goal that we had. Of No, it's just like you start and the good is in doing it. And I think uh, aesthetic activities are paradigmatically atelic. They're the kinds yeah. of things where we just engage in them for their own sake, as it were. And if we were immortal, I think that we would just end up doing aesthetic things a lot. <laughs> I think that's why like, people imagine heaven as full of 
music and poetry and beauty. Because what is there to do in heaven? I mean, all the moral problems are solved. All the political problems are solved. All these sort of like material things are just dissolved or don't exist or not a problem. And so what's left? Well, just being with beauty. Let's write more poetry. Why not? One of the Koch brothers' sons, I don't know if you know, makes these gaudy Hawaiian t-shirts. And I would never buy one. But <laughs> he is living that life. Uh, <laughs> as a as the billionaire child of a multi-billionaire. Boy, if that's if that's what we all have waiting for us in in heaven, I'm not not excited about <laughs> the the Hawaiian t-shirts or the Own, you know, owning the t-shirt, <laughs> maybe nothing, but being able to yeah. make the t-shirts. I can do that in heaven. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, right. Like why not? In heaven you just you make rad t-shirts and give them to your friends and no one's trying to make money off a car wash. They're just washing cars for its own sake. I'm just too snobby. I'm too much of a snot to, to appreciate someone else's Hawaiian, gaudy Hawaiian t-shirt, I think. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Nick, for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. This was we, fun. We've reached the last, the parliamentary part of the game, the gamified thing where we, we just try to decide. Bill, could you just sum up quickly your uh, improv lesson again? Uh, the idea that we can play people in improv scenes by taking on behaviors. And that's how we describe people in our own lives. That's how we think about third-party persons. And we can use that same language, that same structure to play people ourselves. All right. And then when, typically when we have an author guest, the philosophy lesson that I bring in is the author's thesis. Um, what a coincidence. I added my, my own little layer over that, which is to make you think about that in terms of the is-ought distinction again, that you could consider all the facts about life, including that it's short, that it is finite. And none of those at least have a direct line to telling you to do anything. You would have to just look deep within yourself and see what desires you have or could develop with cultivation and try different things. And then you will maybe find out how to best make use of your time. All right. So given those two, the apple and the orange, Nick, which of those things will most profoundly affect our audience and, and that you will think most about after you leave here today? Clearly the, the latter, I believe. If I followed yes, so you the, correctly. The philosophy lesson wow. uh, wins according to our guest. Now, now. Very selfish of you. Very selfish. Now, the guest brought in the, in the lesson. So we have the opportunity. Bill, do you disagree? If we, no, we could, it's we fine. Could, it was Okay. It, all right. All right. We could have a two to one vote if that came down to it. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I don't have to make that decision now. All right. Well, with that uh, useless bit of business done, Nick, uh, give your website or whatever. I'm just at nickriggle.com on Twitter, Nick Riggle. Yeah, you can find my books on the internets and have a go at those. But this was really fun. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. I look forward to doing this eternally in heaven. <laughs> All right. Before High tomorrow. five. High five. <laughs> I learned a lot from you folks today. And I learned a lot from you folks today. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks for the opportunity to, to be on there and do some improv. It's fun. Indeed, indeed. And yeah. scene. Hope you enjoyed the show. Get more at philosophyimprov.com. If you want to support the show and not have to hear any more commercials and get our post-game segments, you can see options to do that at philosophyimprov.com slash support. Thanks. Bankrupt. 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 Bankrupt.